welcome to Misunderstood, a podcast dedicated to better understanding MS and learning to live well with MS. I'm your host, Katie Sloan. Our usual reminders as we begin. I am not an expert. I'm just a person like you living with MS and trying to make the best of it. Misunderstood is based on my personal experience, what I've learned from my doctors, other care providers, and my own solutions-oriented research and pattern-finding obsession. While the majority of the information I share has been vetted by doctors, I am not a doctor. My intention is that you use the information shared here as a springboard for discussion between you and your doctor regarding your future care options. Lastly, MS impacts each of us uniquely. I hope to shine a light on a wide range of approaches and strategies for living better with MS, but what you choose to do with that information is always your choice, and what works for one may not work for all. We've spent time together on the misunderstood journey in previous episodes talking about the intersection of time management, priorities, boundaries, and self-care. As time goes by and I live through more years of life dedicated to living well with MS, how I choose to use my time and energy has become the single most important thing I do. One aspect I'm currently focused on is the power of saying no, and I am fascinated with just how difficult this simple word can be for some of us, including myself, in some of our relationships. I have had a long and arduous relationship with the word no, and I'm finally at the point where I'm able to employ it even in the most challenging of situations. But I didn't start there. In an upcoming episode, we'll be looking at a related topic of fascination for me, the linkage between chronic illness and the feeling of overwhelm. In my research over the years about the root causes of anxiety and overwhelm, one skill has emerged as critical the need to learn and say no more than ever before. Since this is such an important foundational skill for all humans, and especially those of us who may be limited in our cognitive, physical, emotional, or energetic ability, I wanted to spend an episode dedicated entirely to what might be just the most important word in our living well with MS lexicon, no. If you research to find what is defined as the most powerful word in the English language, most experts concur that the most powerful word is because. This is because the word provides reason and rationale to the rest of the message we are trying to convey, which can drastically impact how our message is interpreted and therefore responded to, which then in turn significantly impacts what we experience in our lives. One expert stated that the word because is used to justify outrageous things every day. I agree that because is the pinnacle of power in the words realm because it's one of the main reasons I have struggled in my life with executing the word no in some relationships and settings. I've allowed myself to be swayed and seduced by the becauses. But now that I'm learning to live well with MS, it's clear to me that what will serve me best is elevating the word no and not let even the strongest because convince me enticingly to do otherwise. Let's first take a look at the word no and what it means to humans. 
one of the first exciting milestones in every young child's development is the moment they begin to speak. While this is typically between 11 and 18 months of age, since we're all unique and learn at our own pace, it's not unusual to say our first words sooner or later. In addition to speaking our first words at our own pace, we similarly each say different words as our first, although there are some interesting trends. The first words we say as young humans are directly related to our experiences in our immediate environment in our origin family unit. They are often the words we hear the most from the adults and primary caregivers around us. Because of this, for many of us, our first words are versions of mom, mama, or dad, dada. Next in line are often affirmations or denials. Yep, good old yes and no. Other common words are related to basic needs, like food, water, milk, or bottle, or words that get us what we crave, like want or more. The other words that make the top 10 list are greetings, like hi and bye, and onomatopoeic words, which are words that are used to imitate a sound that something makes, like woof or bark for a dog. The word no is typically one of the first we learn to speak as young humans. On most lists, it's about sixth or seventh, but it's in the top 10 on all the lists I perused. Interesting how one of the first words we learn can be the hardest to use and use well throughout our lives. In this episode, we'll further explore the word no and look at how early childhood experiences with the word no can impact how our relationship with no evolves as we grow. We'll explore reasons why saying no can be so difficult, why it's so important, and some helpful strategies to help us work on strengthening our no. We'll also look at how no can help us specifically on our quest to live well with MS. Before we further explore the word no, let's take a moment for our gratitude portion of this episode. My gratitude this week is for the first daffodil that has bloomed in our yard. She bloomed on Sunday, January 17th, and at the time of this podcast release, 10 days later, on Wednesday, January 27th, she's still standing there all alone despite the fact that there are literally hundreds of daffodil stalks emerging slowly from the ground all around the yard. Even though she's been standing there alone, she has been a wonderful companion, cheering me on as I finished the monumental task of winterizing 100 roses solo this year. I appreciated her silent yet consistent cheery support, and that inspired me to learn a bit more about daffodil symbolism that is worth sharing as we start to think about emerging from our hunkered down winter hibernation. Daffodils are a type of flowering plant that belongs to the amaryllis family. They're typically bright yellow, orange, or white, but also come in other colors. There are about 50 species and over 13,000 varieties of daffodils because new varieties are cultivated via selective breeding every year. They differ in size, color, and number of floral leaves. Different varieties range in height from 6 to 24 inches. Daffodils are the representative flower for the month of March and the symbol for the 10th wedding anniversary. Daffodils are typically the first flower to bloom in spring. 
Because of this, they signify new life, rebirth, resilience, and hope. They are powerful bursts of sunshine that have weathered the cold winter storms. In fact, daffodils need the cold in order to bloom. Ideally, daffodil bulbs should be planted in the fall after temperatures start to cool, but before the ground freezes. This gives the bulbs of the dormant plants time to establish strong root systems before the winter truly sets in. This process helps the roots convert the water stored in the bulb to a carbohydrate, which then acts as antifreeze so the bulb will survive the winter frost. If you live where temperatures don't fall below freezing, you can force this process to occur by placing bulbs in the refrigerator for six to eight weeks prior to planting. I absolutely love that this stage in the daffodil's development, whether it be taking place naturally in the ground or in a refrigerator, is called the chill period. I love the sound of that. And it reminds me of a book I just got called Wintering, the Power of Reset and Retreat in Difficult Times by Catherine May. This is a book recently shared with me by my trusty therapist, Dr. Mori. I haven't started it yet, but plan to soon. Yet I want to share a short synopsis of it here because of its relevancy to both winter and living with a chronic illness like MS. I'll also add that there's a great NPR interview with the author you can view on YouTube if that version is more your style than reading it in book form. In Wintering, the author shares her personal story of health struggles and job loss, and how she not only endured this painful time, but was able to embrace it, take advantage of the unique transformative power of rest and retreat, and then emerge from it stronger than ever. On the Amazon listing, it says, Wintering is... Quote, an intimate, relevatory book exploring the ways we can care for and repair ourselves when life knocks us down. Ultimately, wintering invites us to change how we relate to our own fallow times through active acceptance of sadness, finding nourishment in deep retreat, joy in the hushed beauty of winter, and encouragement in understanding life as cyclical, not linear. A secular mystic, the author forms a guiding philosophy for transforming the hardships that arise before the ushering in of a new season. I'm excited for this read as we get closer to spring and as preparation for the future when I will undoubtedly experience periods of wintering in my own life as we all do. If any listeners want to read it with me and then meet up via Zoom to discuss, I'm game. As the world awakes from winter, daffodils inspire us to rise and present ourselves in different and new ways for the coming year. Daffodils' trumpet-shaped flowers encourage us to celebrate and acknowledge the simple things in life that bring us joy and make us happy, as well as to share our talents with the world around us to live a fulfilling and rewarding life. Since the daffodils' blooms signify the beginning of the end of winter, they communicate hope and tell us that we will not have to suffer much longer in the cold. In fact, daffodils are the official floral symbol of the American Cancer Association because they symbolize hope. 
Daffodils are also known to symbolize positivity and the importance of maintaining a positive attitude throughout our lives, especially through the coldness and darkness of winter and other times of challenge. Thank you, sweet daffodil, for reminding me to smile and for captivating me with your beauty. You are also a reminder that the investment of time I spent planting you securely in the ground with love was time very well spent. I appreciate your companionship as we ride out the rest of winter together. You help me maintain hope, faith, resilience, and the desire to celebrate and share the things that bring me joy quite alive. And you remind me that with the powerful transition of the seasons from winter into spring, that I too have the power within me to grow and change into an even better version of myself as I continue my journey of learning to live well with MS. Why is it hard to say no? And why is it important to learn to say no? Child development and parenting experts agree that one of the most important things we learn when we are young is how to safely and confidently say no in situations where it's really important to say no. I'm not talking about situations where you might not want to eat your vegetables or complete a household chore, but those critical times in our lives when what we choose to do or not do could actually harm us. Why is it that experts consistently agree that it's so important to learn to say no? Because <laughs> for each of us, learning to know ourselves and to understand the innate power that we have to say no and choose our path in life prepares us to navigate the world confidently, independently, and safely as adults, knowing that we do not have to do anything we don't feel comfortable doing. Again, I'm talking about those serious decisions with situations that may cause us harm, not the mundane tasks necessary for adulting. Ideally, we learn while we're young that saying no without the need to offer an explanation of why is acceptable and meant to be honored. Something interesting can happen, however, when we are raised as people pleasers. While we all have been raised to do this to some extent, if it's to an extreme where we've been taught to honor our families or others who might bully us to the point of completely disregarding our own authentic power, then we might not learn how to effectively say no or learn that it's okay and frankly not our problem if our no makes someone else unhappy or disappointed. It's important that we all learn at some point that we are safe and have the right to say no when we don't want to do something. And that is how we empower ourselves for life. When toddlers enter the no stage, it's often a challenge for parents, especially when no becomes their formerly super agreeable toddler's favorite word of all. While it can be frustrating teaching, learning, experience for parents, it's a really important milestone for children as it's how they celebrate their newfound independence and realization that they are actually their own person. Pretty exciting stuff for a toddler. Saying no is a healthy, very normal, and critical step in building a child's autonomy. Of course, children need to learn that no isn't a universal response to everything they don't want to do. 
It's not intended either just to provoke a reaction, but it does have a critical role in human development and is important to learn how to use appropriately in a wide array of contexts. There are many great resources available for parents on how to best parent through the critical development of the no stage and beyond. Most of them discuss innovative ways to avoid using excessive no's with kids so that they learn through modeling how to use it appropriately in their own lives. One suggestion that I read that I use to use in my role as a classroom teacher is asking yourself why not before saying no. As many times, if we don't push pause, no may be an almost automatic response that we don't really think about deeply enough before using. When we notice what kids are doing right and focus on positive encouragement, that is the most powerful and proven way to reinforce desired behaviors. Another really powerful way to teach about the power of no is to offer an expanding amount of choices and autonomy as children grow. Allowing choice reduces frustration, which often reduces the need to issue an emphatic no. Choice also increases engagement and enjoyment exponentially. Learning, too. The last important approach I'll mention here is that when we do need to say no, that we teach children why. Because I said so might be a common response, yet it impedes a child's ability to truly grasp the true understanding and importance of no as they develop their own conceptual understanding of what no means in their life, now and in the future. If we're taught to be extreme people pleasers and to always say yes automatically, even when we know we want or need to say no, we've internalized the belief that being a good friend, child, partner, parent, employee, or just a good human means always saying yes, and that simply isn't the case and is a dangerous slippery slope. The research shares that there are other reasons we might find it difficult to say no as adults, and I want to address those briefly as well, in case any of them resonate for you. As I go through them, be thinking which might offer you some clues regarding your own personal motivations and tendencies for saying yes or no. We say yes because we want to be nice and have people like us. Humans are social animals. We crave community so much that at times we'll be willing to compromise our true needs to feel a part of a group and say yes without fully understanding the cost. In a similar way, if we bow out and say no, that can be seen as a deliberate attempt to separate ourselves from others. We might fear repercussions of saying no, such as loss of social and emotional stimuli, like attention, recognition, appreciation, and intimacy. In family and employment structures, current societal norms are to avoid saying no, in fact, we are encouraged to comply by following the rules and accepted norms of behavior. And following the rules often leads to promotion, while saying no typically is not rewarded in similar ways, and frequently leads to a negative employment outcome, for instance. We might also experience FOMO. We might struggle with our no because we have FOMO, 
fear of missing out. Since humans are social beings, and in our current culture of busy, it's often frowned upon when we decline an opportunity to engage. In our capitalistic society, success is often measured in materialistic ways, what we look like or how we are perceived by others so we don't want to disappoint. So we often say yes to buying things, wearing things, styling ourselves in certain ways, and acting certain ways that we wouldn't if we didn't care so much about what other people think about us. Sometimes we say yes simply because we would want others to say yes to us. By always saying yes to others in the hopes that others will always say yes to us, that's a huge burden of expectation we are placing on ourselves, as well as an unhealthy sense of self-imposed duty. Not to mention, it's also in turn setting an unrealistic expectation of others. We say yes because we believe self-sacrifice is a positive characteristic we all should employ. And yet in reality, many people would not return the favor toward us in our time of need, so our kindness is taken advantage of. We might also say yes because it's important to us to follow through and be responsible. So once we commit to something, it's important to do what we said we would do. Sometimes we say yes before we accurately understand the scope of an ask. Once we do, we are reluctant to withdraw our help, even if it means a significant personal sacrifice for us to stick with it. We might fear loss of relationship by saying no. We think that if we establish limits, we will be rejected or abandoned. We say yes because we have become nothing more than a human doormat. Ouch. We might consistently say yes to those who hold real or perceived power over us, like bosses or parents with positional power or those who have knowledge power, like professors or doctors, or financial power because they have obtained more wealth and therefore must know more. Another reason we might always say yes is because we suffer from what's often referred to as the savior complex. This is when we have an almost uncontrollable need to save, help, or care for others, even at the cost of sacrificing what we need or even hurting ourselves. We might consistently put the needs of others before ours. We might even be unaware that we consider their needs or desires more valuable and important than our own. When we can say no without fear or guilt, we are free. While saying yes feels good in the moment because it avoids social tension or immediate conflict, superficially it may appear to save time and be a quick solution that avoids unpleasantry. But then we have to follow through on our promise. Before we move on to talk about why a strong awareness of our yes and no is extra important for those of us living with MS, I want to first share some poignant quotes I discovered while researching for this episode that I believe are powerful to reflect upon directly after reflecting upon the unique patterns and potential root causes of our own current personal yes or no tendencies. Warren Buffett says, 
The difference between successful people and really successful people is that really successful people say no to almost everything. Author Tim Ferriss says, what you don't do determines what you can do. Humorist Henry Wheeler Shaw said, half the troubles of this life can be traced to saying yes too quickly and not saying no soon enough. Steve Jobs says, focusing is about saying no. It's only by saying no that you can concentrate on the things that are really important. Pythagoras says, the oldest, shortest words, yes and no, are those which require the most thought. Bill Crawford said, one key to successful relationships is learning to say no without guilt so that you can say yes without resentment. Paulo Coelho says, when you say yes to others, make sure you are not saying no to yourself. Don't say maybe if you want to say no. Richie Norton said, say no to everything so you can say yes to the one thing. An unknown source said, I refuse to please others at the expense of my emotional well-being, even if it means saying no to people who are used to hearing yes. W. Clement Stone said, have the courage to say no. Have the courage to face the truth. Do the right thing because it is right. These are the magic keys to living your life with integrity. And another from Steve Jobs. People think focus means saying yes to the things you've got to focus on, but that's not what it means at all. It means saying no to the hundred other good ideas that there are. You have to pick carefully. I'm actually as proud of the things we haven't done as the things we have. Ernest Yaboa says, it takes true courage and real humility to say no. Lori DeShane, you can be a good person with a kind heart and still say no. Claudia Black, saying no can be the ultimate self-care. And we'll end with Stephanie Lahart. Let today mark a new beginning for you. Give yourself permission to say no without feeling guilty, mean, or selfish. Anybody who gets upset or expects you to say yes all of the time clearly doesn't have your best interest at heart. Always remember, you have a right to say no without having to explain yourself. Be at peace with your decisions. Are you still wondering why this is all so important, especially for those of us living with MS? Life in general for a perfectly healthy human is hard. It's also incredible and the best thing ever. It's precisely that wide range of experiences that makes life such the wonderful adventure it is. Throwing MS or other health variables into the equation causes even more imbalance, literally. MS changes us over time. So the rules of life we used to prescribe to have now changed. 
And from my research, I believe no is now the most important word in the English language because, nope, I said no. So while navigating life with MS is tough sometimes, there are ways to make it easier for sure. And learning to honor our no can really help. When we're first diagnosed, many of us try to keep up with how life was prior to the start of our official relationship with MS. We don't want people to treat us differently, and usually we resist trying to think about ourselves differently. We want to maintain our commitment to things we were good at and cared about and enjoyed doing. Because MS hits most of us in the prime of our lives, It's common that we go from being people with very active professional and personal lives to now having to include our MS in the equation for every single decision we make. Here's the thing. We are different. We now have a new normal. Adjusting course is necessary. What I didn't anticipate is just how enjoyable life could be with MS after finally accepting this change, making just a few adjustments and learning to say no, which has been a big one. Before I learned this important lesson through many painful failures, I continued my former pattern of pretty much saying yes to the vast majority of requests that came my way after my diagnosis. For a while, I told myself I was just wired that way, And that as someone dedicated to service leadership, as well as very social, it was how I wanted and needed to continue to operate in my life. What I'm able to see when I look back now is that by consistently saying yes, even when my mind, body, or heart wanted to say no, or felt too exhausted to honestly say yes, I paid a real price for it in my own physical or mental health. What I also realize now is that by consistently saying yes, I was unintentionally enabling others and simultaneously preventing them from their much needed further development and journey to become more self-reliant. By overhelping, I actually wasn't helping at all. This pattern, albeit not super healthy for anyone, maybe wasn't too detrimental prior to my official life with MS, but it definitely matters now. And I can look back and trace both major MS attacks I've experienced directly to times of prolonged elevated stress where I did not say no when frankly I needed to. Trying to live life well with MS is a full-time job that comes with a lot of potential stressors. Saying yes to external requests on top of that adds extra stress to our lives. We owe it to ourselves to give ourselves permission to say no to anything that makes us unhappy or drains our energy. It's more important now than ever that we learn to say no as technological advances no longer protect our time and space for us. Others now often have 24-7 access to us. It's a current societal norm to be available and responsive in a very timely manner. Yet another reason why boundaries and the word no are so important. For many of our friends and family, no matter how hard they try, 
they will not be able to truly understand what it's like to live with a chronic illness like MS. And thank goodness, as the MS club isn't one anyone is eager to join, and none of us would honestly wish membership on even our worst enemy. What others will likely never understand is what we experience when we push ourselves too hard or don't say no soon enough. For example, if we push ourselves to attend an event when we're already fatigued, even if we take it easy or leave early, only we know that by pushing ourselves so hard, our recovery is likely to take days. At some point, we have to do a risk-benefit analysis and determine if spending time doing things beyond our safe capability is wise and truly prioritizing our health. And if, over time, we don't prioritize our health, progression may occur more rapidly, which of course none of us want. Just like how each of us experience MS differently, so too must we each travel our own journey with our own unique timeline, along which we must decide what is most important and what to say no to so that we can say a resounding yes to living well with MS. True friends will understand our need to say no. Toxic relationships or relationships that are solely a drain and never a fountain are important to learn to recognize. Living well with chronic illness exposes toxic relationships and gets them out in the open. Even when we were healthy, it wasn't our job to make everyone happy or acquiesce to every ask. Now it's more critical that we don't. Sure, it may mean our social network shrinks a bit over time, but the benefits far outweigh the losses, and the friends and family who do choose to stay in our corner are true friends. Quality over quantity. Nothing in my life has taught me this better than living with MS. True friends don't give us a hard time when we have to say no, and they continue to invite us places but understand and respect our no if we cannot make it. Missing out on something we wanted to enjoy isn't easy for us. True friends don't pile on additional guilt. One thing I'm working on in my own life is how to be a better true friend with MS by being more vocal when I'm struggling. By proactively sharing what I'm experiencing, I help my true friends better understand why I might go dark for a while. Our friends, family, and caregivers aren't mind readers. By being more open, I am finding that I am experiencing less guilt, disappointment, and shame about my illness. I am enough, just as I am. As I further internalize that other people's emotions, actions, choices, and opinions are not my responsibility, it's getting a lot easier. I am only responsible for my emotions, actions, choices, and opinions. Letting go and giving myself permission to say no has been a powerful part of my healing journey. I used to think in terms of, I can handle this, MS won't stop me. But now I realize that I can be a lot happier and feel a lot better if I work with my MS rather than fighting against it. It's taught me to better listen to myself and my needs that I used to deprioritize. 
I don't let MS monopolize everything in my life, but it is my co-pilot, always beside me. I read somewhere a wise person said, don't let your illness consume your life and aspirations. Those are powerful words for sure. And yet also now I see that there is real beauty and acceptance that life is different now. And until I got to that point, I was still pressuring myself to live a quote-unquote normal life, not recognizing that part of the gift of MS has been the need to slow down. A lot of good has come from that. I smell the roses more now. I enjoy the journey rather than solely focusing on the destination and getting there as fast as I can with blinders on. MS ironically took a lot of my vision capabilities, and yet in that darkness, it helped me to finally see with clarity many things in my life I needed to see, and for that, I'm eternally grateful. Let's look more at the root causes for why we say yes when we really mean no. Most of the data speaks to it having to do with fear of rejection or our own self-confidence or our personal history with the word no. If we're told no a lot beyond when it was necessary and healthy, we may have conditioned ourselves to avoid no whenever possible because we understand how hurtful no can be in some contexts, like when we really need help or want to choose a path that is different from the path others want us to lead. If we personally had a lot of negative experiences being told no, we certainly wouldn't want to be the cause of making others feel that way, would we? What's necessary is shifting our mindsets to understand that no is not a rejection, even though it may have been used that way with us in our earlier lives and on our path to developing an unhealthy relationship with the word no. The truth is that no is not a rejection. It's a healthy way to establish and maintain healthy boundaries in our relationships with others and with ourselves. Developing an awareness of how we are feeling when we say no and how different people we are in relationship with respond to our no, it's an important assessment tool of the quality and authenticity of our relationships. I want to add here a short blurb on symbiosis. Because here, nature again can be a really effective teacher in helping us to better understand aspects of our lives. Symbiosis is defined as a close relationship between two different kinds of organisms or living things. There are three basic types of symbiotic relationships, although a few more variants do exist, but it's these three that are most common and the ones relevant for today's topic. Mutualism, commensalism, and parasitism. Mutualism is a relationship in which both organisms benefit, awesome and healthy. Commensalism is a type of relationship where one of the organisms benefits greatly from the symbiosis, but the other is not helped, but is also not harmed or damaged from the relationship. In other words, it's a one-sided symbiotic relationship. With the third type of symbiosis, parasitism, one of the organisms benefits from the interaction while the other organism is affected negatively. 
We can use symbiosis as a way to evaluate our relationships in our lives. Hopefully, we each have a healthy cluster of folks with whom we share a mutualistic relationship where we both benefit from the relationship. We also likely have many relationships that are more commensalistic in nature, where one of us may benefit more than the other, but the other isn't harmed. What's most important for us to discover in this reflection of our relationships through a symbiotic lens is those relationships in our lives that are parasitic in nature, the ones that cause us more harm than good. With these relationships, it's imperative that we learn to say no before they cause us irreparable harm, which could be catastrophic for people like us living with MS. On the path to learning to better utilize my no, I now like to think of no as a muscle that I can use, just like any other muscle in our body, and even our brain, like when we've talked about Carol Dweck's growth mindset and the importance of developing a more flexible, healing mindset. Muscles get stronger through practice. That's how we create muscle memory. If our no muscle is weak, we will more likely feel guilt or shame when we do say no, and especially when our no is not accepted and is further challenged. Because our no muscle may be so weak, we might forget that saying no is a valid and acceptable choice for each of us. Exercising our no muscle regularly so that when we do encounter a situation where we say no and receive pushback, can help us maintain our clarity and simply say, I understand you may wish I was saying yes, but I am choosing to say no. Thank you for respecting my choice. No doesn't have to be a rejection. And teaching our no muscle that when it's employed with honesty and integrity, it's simply a statement about us and not at all a rejection of someone else. While it may be hard for people who are used to hearing our resounding yeses to get used to it, over time they will get used to it and honor our right to choose, just as they honor their own choice to say no. Let's now look at three quick examples of how learning to say no could play out and be a helpful MS symptom management or prevention tool. Let's say we're feeling pretty fatigued, but a good friend reaches out and wants to connect with us via Zoom. Even though meeting up via Zoom requires less effort than, say, cleaning up our home to accommodate an in-person visit or going out to meet up with someone in person, most of us still try to prepare our space and ourselves a bit to engage with others virtually rather than show up in our loungewear with messy hair. During the Zoom, we stay alert and focused on the conversation, and we likely enjoy the conversation and deeply appreciate the human connection. When the conversation ends, however, we might also feel like our fatigue has multiplied exponentially because of all the extra energy and effort it took to meet up and engage. And now we lack what we need to fulfill our other responsibilities for the day like making dinner for our family, for instance. What if, instead, before saying yes, we took time to gauge our current energy levels, communicated that we were very interested in meeting up but didn't currently have the capacity, and made a plan to meet up at another time when we typically have more fuel in our tanks? 
Or if it's an urgent need and we don't want to leave a friend hanging, could we agree to a short phone call instead? Using our self-awareness combined with a healthy, gentle boundary in this situation could be very helpful. I'll include a quick plug here for the Marco Polo video messaging app, which I use regularly. I love that this is such an easy way that I can keep in contact with others in a way that works well for me. Since we each send our video messages at our own convenience, I can choose to send my communication at times when I'm feeling good, and it's much less fatigue-inducing than a long back-and-forth conversation for me. For our second example, I'll choose something that I've experienced throughout my adult life as someone who has always had a truck. You can probably guess, I'm asked to help people move a lot. Before MS, I didn't mind so much and would often say yes. But now, this isn't a request I can continue to honor safely. Moving ourselves three years ago was a monumental task and really clarified this for me. I spent about five months preparing, slowly and methodically packing items into stackable boxes and having Eric place them in storage prior to the move so they were ready to go. Even then, the actual physical move was still quite tough on me. We gratefully had many friends and family pitch in to help and broke it into multiple moving events over several weeks. Now, when I'm asked to help with a move, I can easily say, I'd love to help you move, but with MS, my balance isn't so great, nor is my ability to carry things, and it wouldn't be safe for me to help. Sometimes I might offer to help in another way by ordering food and beverages during the move, helping someone develop strategies for the move, either preparation, the actual moving logistics, or how to prioritize redecorating the new place. But sometimes I just leave it at no and accept that there are other people who can fill that need better now than I can. Using our MS to help us communicate our needs helps educate others and helps us protect ourselves. For our third example, let's look at a situation where it might behoove us to say no to ourselves and set an internal boundary. I know that for me, if I drive after dark, it takes a lot more out of me since my eyes are so sensitive to light, and I often feel quite tired by the time the sun goes down, especially if I've had excessive screen time that day or an experiencing higher levels of stress. There have been times in the past where I've needed an ingredient for the dinner I'm cooking or for the next day, and I would push myself to go out to get what I needed. I mean, it's a pretty small ask of myself, no? Especially when we literally live five minutes from everything we need? Actually, it's not a small ask of myself, even though before MS, it certainly was. Now, if I overly stress my eyes when they are already tired, it results in longer and more serious impairment that might last for days. Part of my journey has been to learn to push pause, Listen attentively to the signals my body is sending me and act in ways that help rather than hinder my future, how I feel and what I'm able to do. By learning to say no to myself when this sort of ask comes up has actually encouraged me to be a better planner so I don't end up 
not having what I need very often, and I have enough energy to enjoy the evening instead with my family. Before we continue, I want to share here a common way that people with chronic illness learn to better manage their daily energy. It's called the spoon theory. The spoon theory term was coined by Christine Miserandino in 2003. At the time, Christine was out to dinner with a caring and curious friend who asked her genuinely what it was like to live with lupus. Christine grabbed what was close, a bunch of spoons. She used the spoons to help her friend understand that people with chronic illness often start off their days with a somewhat depleted supply of energy. So even if the average person might have 10 or more spoons worth of energy in the morning to dole out throughout their day as they chose, while someone living with chronic illness might wake up and only have five spoons to spend. She used this powerful visual representation to illustrate to her friend that how you choose to use your spoons matters, or you may be left with none left and still need to make dinner. The spoon theory was a helpful tool for me when I was first learning how to live with MS. If I started my morning with only five spoons worth of energy, by the time I was showered, dressed, and fed myself, I only had two left. And some days, just showering, dressing, and trying to remember to eat took everything I had. Certainly didn't leave many spoons for the commute, the work day, and certainly not any spoons to use to do something fun or kind for myself. Fast forward to now, where I'm much better at managing my energy. I find I can now also often create more spoons throughout the day through rest, mindfulness, exercise, and self-hypnosis. I also find I practice much better sleep hygiene now, and when I get the restorative sleep I need, I start off the day with significantly more spoons. In addition, by eating the mito way, which feeds our mitochondria, or our energy producers, I gratefully find it's more the norm now that I have many more spoons at my disposal than I once did. I still have to be cognizant of my spoons, however. If I push too hard, I'll often have a spoon deficit that can last even for several days. Most folks who don't have to know about the spoon theory won't understand what it's like to seemingly overnight have our fuel tanks emptied and our batteries depleted, and how if we don't sleep well, or frankly sometimes even when we do, we still can wake up with zero spoons to use for the entire day. In a similar way, if we eat empty foods devoid of nutrients, while most people might be just fine energy-wise, for us, it means significantly less energy, and probably not enough to even accomplish the basics of hygiene and sustenance. Since its creation, Christine's spoon theory has grown throughout marginalized groups to help explain to others how exhaustion and fatigue are experienced significantly differently by us. It's most commonly utilized to explain the experience of an invisible disability. Because those of us who have no visible conditions or aids that we use to help us are often misjudged as being lazy, flaky, non-committal, or habitually late with poor time management skills. 
The main reason I wanted to share the spoon theory here is twofold. One, there are things we can do to create more spoons over time so we can do more. Two, it's a helpful tool to use to explain to people who might not honor our no. If they better understand that every time we say yes, it's a bigger ask, both in time and energy commitment, than it will be for someone who lives with a full stack of spoons and has the ability to easily create more spoons whenever they want. Let's talk about another reason why it's so important for us to learn to have an accurate gauge of our current spoons, energy, or ability levels as we plan our days. For many of us, especially those of us with relapsing remitting MS, we experience times of plateau where we have a pretty good idea of the routine challenges we're likely to face throughout a typical day. It's important for us to remember, however, that MS is in part also quite unpredictable. We need to have no at the ready for when we need it. I don't know anyone who enjoys canceling plans or turning down requests from someone we care about. Yet if we really think about it, if the other person knew what it really meant and how it would impact us to say yes to their request, I highly doubt they would want us to say yes. They don't know what MS is like, so being strong self-advocates and communicating our needs to them can be an easier way to let them down easy if saying no is a struggle for us. Let's also mention that if we do explain and our no is still contested, that's a really important message for us to receive and a clear indicator that we might have relationships in our lives that are toxic and in need of some major boundary work, like we discussed a bit ago in the context of symbiotic relationships. Doing this work over the past few years has helped me to learn that those who really matter to me don't mind my no's. And those who do mind really don't or shouldn't matter so much to me. Redefining relationships has been an enlightening, at times painful, but overall a very powerful teaching tool that has helped me ensure that I'm using my most precious limited resource, my time, in the ways that are right for me. Preparing to use our no as if it's physically attached to our tool belt and is at the ready is a good strategy. By planning ahead for how to respond, we'll be more likely to actually respond in a way that protects us and our inner desire to say no. It's a personal preference if that no mentions our MS or not. It honestly shouldn't need to come with an explanation. But as someone who has struggled with saying no in the past, I found it was easier to start when the no was accompanied with a palatable explanation. So, we could say, with an unpredictable disease like MS, it's really hard for me to plan ahead since I don't know how I will feel in that moment. There may be time, like today, where I need to change our plan or say no, even though I'd rather say yes and help you or spend time with you. I really appreciate your understanding. We can also consider being more proactive about our need to be flexible when we initially make plans or agree to an ask. For example, we could accept an invitation or respond in conjunction with a statement like, my desire or intent is to be there or to do what you've asked. I need you to know, however, that as someone who lives with an unpredictable chronic illness, 
Please understand that something might impede my ability to follow through. I actually love being upfront in this way because it communicates from the start that if they'd rather invite or ask someone who can 100% commit to the plan or ask now, I can express in return that I completely understand and that my feelings won't be hurt at all by their decision to choose someone else to ask. It's a nice way to honor both people's needs. We can also consider saying a soft yes and have a backup plan. So for instance, if there's an ask I want to honor, but aren't sure I'll be able to do it in actuality, I may grab a buddy to help or put a backup plan in place from the beginning. By voicing that condition early in the initial planning or ask phase, it ensures what's needed to happen will happen, and yet it also communicates validation to the other person that what they are asking or planning for is important and has value to us. So it's really a win-win. Sometimes I might find myself to be more prone to saying yes for something that will happen in the future rather than the now. I loved discovering this helpful tip from Tim Harford from The Undercover Economist. He suggests that before saying yes, we ask ourselves, if we had to do this right now, would we agree to it? If our internal voice says no, then that is our decision. End of story. By using this helpful question, we can learn over time to not say yes to things we truly don't want to do or might even be harmful for us to do. I want to reiterate here before we go on that no is a complete sentence. It doesn't require an explanation. If we choose to add more like I often do, it's helpful to think about it in terms of an educational opportunity to teach others more about MS. Thinking about it in that way helps remind us that saying no is not personal against the person asking us to do something, nor does it indicate a personal failure that we're not able to acquiesce to their ask. It's simply the lack of predictability and control that comes with living with MS. Now, some folks may struggle with no being a complete sentence. I'll share a few strategies that will help if it's us, the speaker, who's struggling with using no as a complete sentence. For now, I'll just say again that while no is a complete sentence, it's often considered more considerate to add a few key words rather than leaving people to wonder how we feel about our no. Using words like sadly or regrettably paired with our no communicates our awareness that our no may bring disappointment to them and that it brings us no joy to say no to them. The simple words of sadly or regrettably can help make our no more palatable for those who struggle being on the receiving end of no. When we finally acknowledge and accept that we are not the person we were prior to MS, it's a powerful transition. It's much more difficult to move forward and become our best self with MS if we are still holding on to who we were and what we could do back then. If we keep longing to return to that person who now no longer exists, we're much more likely to struggle with depression. This can be especially difficult if we have friends or family likewise pressuring us to still be the person we once were rather than the person we are now. 
if we've done our due diligence by trying to educate and set realistic expectations for what we may or may not be able to do on any given day, and someone chooses not to understand and accept what we're saying, it's not on us to keep justifying, explaining, or defending ourselves. Their choice to ignore our medical needs speaks loud and clear. Sometimes, in order for us to move forward, we have to leave others behind if they are unwilling to adjust, like we've had to adjust. Since our condition may be in a constant state of fluctuation, we might need to reflect upon and adjust our expectations and how we spend our energy quite regularly. At first, this seemed overwhelming and really difficult to me, but over time, it's become a natural part of my day and almost automatic. We'll look now at just a couple more quick ways to make saying no easier for those of us who might currently struggle to say no, to help us promote more high-quality, authentic, caring relationships and more balanced lives. First, we can suggest alternatives that do work. In this way, we're not saying no, but saying yes in a different way that is a better fit for us. This way, we communicate that we want to spend time with them or help them, but that it's other aspects of the ask that just doesn't work for us right now. For me, that means that it's currently unlikely I will plan in advance to go on, say, an outdoor hike with a friend. It's too hard for me to predict if I'll be able to do that on a particular day in the future, or if the weather will be favorable, since that can have a huge impact on my energy and ability levels. In fact, most of us learn fairly quickly that even if we rest up for days prior to an event to try to prepare, that's no reliable indication that our batteries will be full enough to say yes on the day of. So, when asked to plan a hiking date, for instance, I might suggest planning something else that can work most days, energy-wise, and isn't contingent on the weather, like a virtual happy hour, a casual lunch date, or a book club meeting. Maintaining a flexible growth mindset so we don't focus on what we can't do, but rather how we could do it differently, helps us see the alternative as a positive rather than a choice that is less than. If we maintain that the relationship and time together is way more important than actually what we decide to do together, that helps too. We can also compromise the when, but not the what. Sometimes it's the when that is the issue and not the actual ask. Just because the timing is right for the person who is asking doesn't mean their schedule matters more than ours. By saying, I'd love to, but that timing doesn't work for me, could you do it next week instead? Communicates interest in helping, but also ensures that what is decided will be mutually beneficial for both parties. So in this case, it's helpful to think of it as a not now, rather than a hard no. We can also use this strategy to put off the decision in its entirety until it's a better time. But we should really only resort to this strategy if we really do want to do what they're asking. We can use language like, let's revisit this when we both have adequate time to give it the attention it deserves. Or, the timing's not right for me now, but please keep me in mind for future opportunities like this. Or, it's not realistic for me to do that right now, but that's definitely something I'd like to do with you in the future. 
one of my favorite strategies that helped me start on the path to saying no more easily is to take more time to respond. For those of us who are conditioned to say yes, we might actually say yes automatically before we even really think about it. A helpful way to help train ourselves to stop this wicked habit that makes life with MS so much harder is to not commit right away. When we tell someone we need to check our calendar, and maybe even check in with our partner or family calendars too, this gives us time to contemplate more deeply if the ask is something we really want to do and are capable of doing safely, knowing that saying yes here will impact what else we can say yes to. Saying, I'd like to, let me check my calendar and I'll get back to you tomorrow, is a perfectly acceptable response. And again, if the short delay is not acceptable to them, that's a good indicator that relationship might be in need of further symbiosis reflection and boundary establishment. Another strategy is to practice, practice, practice. The more we practice saying no, the easier it gets. I found that starting with casual relationships was much easier. An interaction with a salesperson, a casual acquaintance, or a really close friend who is very accepting. Those are much easier places to start exercising our no muscle than a close relationship where there are potentially unhealthy long-term patterns of manipulation and entitlement at play. For those of us who are really struggling with our no, it can be helpful to use an even more structured and systematic approach, which I'll outline here. When we encounter a situation where we need to say no or cancel plans, before we even say anything to someone else, taking a moment to speak to ourselves can help. This act of self-acceptance is important and typically gets us to a place where we can say no more easily. For instance, we might say to ourselves, I have MS and that means I need to pay closer attention to my needs. Sometimes that means asking for help and sometimes that means saying no, changing course, or canceling, even if I don't want to. After accepting our reality, we take a moment to offer compassion to ourselves and acknowledge our feelings about what we need to do. Maybe it's sadness, guilt, disappointment, or shame. Reminding ourselves that we are not alone in needing to cancel plans or change course. Everyone needs to do it at some point. And it's not in our control that it's a more common need for people who live with chronic illness can ease the discomfort we may feel. The last piece of self-reflection is to remind ourselves that even if we do have to say no, cancel plans, or adjust course, we still trust ourselves to do what's important to us, stay connected with those we love, and show up whenever MS does not present itself as an unpredicted and untimely barrier. Having this internal dialogue before we say no can help prime the pump and make our future no much easier to employ. Being able to say no and establish and maintain boundaries is healthy and will help us live well with MS. Refusing a request does not mean we are refusing or rejecting the person. It may help us to say no if we clearly define why the request doesn't work for us. If we share openly and vulnerably about our limitations and needs, it's a great opportunity to educate others. We and every human deserve the right to prioritize our needs and feelings. 
We are the most important person in our life, and we are worth it. Prioritizing our needs is not selfish. It's a profound act of self-care and illuminates the power of saying no when we want to. It's also important for us to remember that we can't take care of others if we don't take care of ourselves first. There's a reason airline staff remind us each flight to put our own oxygen mask on first. We've talked about this in other episodes, so we won't go into depth here except to say that if we're overly conditioned to care for others and used to thinking about other people and making sure they are okay before we even check in on ourselves, learning to say no may have to start with saying not yet. Once we have learned to check on ourselves first, then caring for others can still be something we can do. It's also helpful to think about how saying no can be seen as a sign of respect for a relationship. If we say yes when we mean no, that can easily lead to resentment, which almost always has a negative impact on the relationship. Saying no when we mean no shows respect for both parties since honesty and trust are important foundational qualities in all healthy relationships. When we say no, an added bonus is that we're helping others learn to say no too. We're setting a positive example of how setting healthy boundaries cultivates healthier relationships. In this way, executing healthy boundaries with someone can be a gift that keeps on giving. Lastly, saying no actually enables us to say yes to something else. Every time we say no, we are creating space for an opportunity to say yes. Thinking about no in this way can help us with so many things in life. And in an upcoming episode, I'll share some concrete examples of how I'm using my no to help me say yes in my quest to conquer overwhelm. With MS, saying no to something we need to say no to can help us stay out of the hospital or continue to acquire new levels of disability from our progressing MS. Yeah, learning to say no is that important. My hope is that after listening to this episode, we all, one, understand that time is finite and our most precious resource. Two, that while no and yes are amongst the first words we learn and the shortest and simplest in the English language, it behooves us to push pause before we say either so that we fully understand what might be influencing our response, as well as the future ramifications of our response. Three, that we each take some time in the coming days to further reflect upon our own no's and yeses and how they are honored or not by people in our lives. And four, that we accept that our no and yes may need to be employed differently when living with a chronic illness like MS. As Stephen Covey says, we have to decide what our highest priorities are and have the courage pleasantly, smilingly, and non-apologetically to say no to other things. The way to do that is by having a bigger yes burning inside. For me, that bigger yes is living well with MS. Before we sign off for this episode, I want to remind everyone about the opportunity mentioned in the last episode, episode 25, regarding the Center for Mind-Body Medicine, upcoming virtual course with Lacey, 
This group is forming now, and there are four spots left. As Lacey mentioned, this course can help with anything you want to change or are stuck with in your life. A mindset, a physical or emotional pain, a bad habit or addiction, really anything. I hope you'll consider giving yourself the gift of positive change this year so that you can be the you you want to be. If you're interested, all you need to do at this point is reach out to Lacey. Her email is l-d-a-b-e-l-o-w at gmail.com. Once again, l-d-a-b-e-l-o-w at gmail.com to express your interest. Be sure to tell her you want to join the MS group. The cost for this course is typically $250 for an eight-week course, but Lacey is making it available for $200 for all eight weeks, so $25 a week. However, we do not want cost to be a barrier, so we are both currently working on obtaining donations and scholarships, so anyone who wants to attend can. Once Lacey has a cohort of interested folks, she'll work with us to find a common time starting in mid-March-ish that works for all of us. I'm planning to participate again since I know I'll get even more out of it this time around. Flock members, I look forward to seeing you the first Saturday in February, February 6th, where we will discuss this episode and others, as well as just connect for MS support in any way we need. If you're not a flock member yet but would like to be, join us. We meet via Zoom the first Saturday of each month and when special podcast guests are able to meet with us. You can learn more and join by visiting www.patreon.com/msflock. As always, I encourage all listeners to reach out with questions, comments, future podcast topics, or guest ideas via email to mymsflock at gmail.com. And if anyone listening decides to read Wintering and wants to discuss it with others, please reach out. Lastly, remember, as we travel through life with MS, we're certain to hit some turbulence. We'll get through it, especially if we're flying together, supporting one another. I'll add here a saying I came across while researching for this episode. When I is replaced by we, illness becomes wellness. Together, everyone achieves more. Thank you for listening and thank you for being on this journey with me. Your support and feedback means so much. Until next time, be well. Ah!